Uh, I'm not sure if you were here yesterday or not, but I just want to praise God for what he did. Yesterday was our heyday outreach, and it was a fantastic time. I just want you to picture a few things, because this whole place was transformed. So from about here to the end of the platform, there was a massive backdrop, and it was a farm scene, and there were cows, and there was a bunch of boxes in front with like different farm animal faces placed on there. Uh, We had people from uh, all over the neighborhood and community. The patio out there was saturated with with folks, uh, parents, kiddos. Uh, There was uh, water balloons being thrown out in the parking lot. You might see some little specks of water balloons around still, which is great. Uh, There was a couple of bounce houses out there. But best of all, the gospel was shared with a bunch of kids. And it was done so in a really creative way. So special thanks to, to Andrew Sanders and Sophia Oliveri for writing the script that made that happen. It was excellent. And for all those who participated also in the story, we had puppeteers up here. We had a couple people dressed as sheep. But they weren't just sheep. They were like groovy cool sheep. Okay, They had sunglasses on. They had the whole thing going. Uh, we, we did not violate any copyright laws, I can guarantee you that, because Andrew composed and recorded all the music for it. So again, praise God for that. That's huge too. Yeah. Angela House, who is not here today uh, because she's got a family event out of town, but she did a lot to coordinate that and oversee the entire thing. So praise God for Angela and the team of people. She even had the wisdom to plan uh, the enjoyment of Chick-fil-A for, lunch, for the meal at that time, too. So again, it was all a big hit. Now you're going, why wasn't I there? See? Huh? Right there. It was the Chick-fil-A. That's what did it. I know. Uh, but super grateful for what God did in that. And grateful for what God's doing in our church family to reach the community. Again, we're committed to growing deeper, walking closer, and reaching farther. And, uh, and that's um, many of the conversations that were had on the patio uh, we're just getting to know people more and also talk about God and the things of God. And so we're, we're, we're excited about that. Uh, we're continuing. I, I really, actually, I was, I was going to, before talking about that, I was going to walk up and pre, you know, introduce the, the next guest speaker uh, this Sunday. And it's me. <laughs> Hello. Uh, because <laughs> I haven't been up here much. I'm not trying to avoid you. That is not what's going on. We have a lot of folks that we enjoy having come through and, and share the word with us. And we're grateful we get to have them. And so just the calendar lines up a certain way, and that's what happens. So uh, we're grateful for that also. But we're continuing now through the book of Hosea. And, and I, I want to begin just by asking a question. And, and this uh, might sound like a, an obvious question, but I, I don't think it is. I really want us to consider it. And that would be this. Do you love God? And, uh, and of course, if you're here today and you consider yourself a believer, and you might think, well, yeah, of course, I mean, I'm, I'm a Christian, that's, that's what I do. But we, we need to be very careful about this issue uh, because when we kind of use that idea, it's foundational to who I am as a Christian, let's say. We use that word foundation. We've got to realize, you know, foundations are something that are easily assumed. I mean, think of your house. You know, did you buy it because you just love the foundation? Or when you have people over, you have them go, hey, come over, check that. Oh, yeah, we got a great kitchen, but check out this foundation. It's amazing. Do you, like, light it and stuff and paint it? No, you don't. I mean, it's basically dirty, forgotten. It's dusty. It's important. The only time you think about your foundation is if something wrong is wrong with it. I mean, when you bought the house, you wanted the inspector to find out if there was something wrong. 
but it wasn't the major selling point for you. And so foundations, they can be assumed, they can be forgotten. And, and, and really, as we continue our journey through Hosea, we're being asked repeatedly over and over and over again, do you love God? It's actually asking something a little more than that even. It's asking, do you love God more than anything else in the whole world? And here's the thing. To the extent that in our heart of hearts we go, well, yes, or kind of, or maybe, I don't know, everything else in the whole world, if there's a thought of sort of, to the extent that our hearts go there, we need to recognize something. The Bible would say, we are, if we're not loving God more than anything else in the whole world, we are in some way or form engaging in some kind of idolatry. So Hosea's question, do you love God more than anything else in the whole world? That's something we need to explore, and that's something that Hosea is dealing with God's people in. And and the, the theme of the entire book of Hosea is simply this, God's faithful love for a faithless people. Um, the year is 740 B.C., and the prophet Hosea is commissioned by God to, to prophesy, really, to a divided kingdom. Uh, so at this point in, t- in Israel's history, they're not united, they're not together. There's been a massive rift and the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom are claiming independence. Uh, the Assyrian Empire is who dominates the world scene right now. They have unsurpassed military might. Their political power is, is just flowing into every part of the known world at this time. And so if you want to have a good life as a nation and if you want to do well, you're going to get on Assyria's good side. And so what does God do? As God's people has, have been distracted by the surrounding nations, as they're seeing all these political pressures, military pressures, as they want to be like the nations around them, they have embraced the Canaanite gods. They've been worshiping idols. And so God commands Hosea, his prophet, to actually use his life as a picture of God's relationship with his people. And so God tells Hosea to marry a woman of harlotry, Gomer. And so he does so. And Hosea's life becomes this living picture of a faithless wife running around committing adultery and Hosea reaching out to her, caring for her. And so in chapters one and two, we we learn that, that God's covenant language with Israel isn't simply a business arrangement. It's a covenant of intimacy. It's a covenant of love. It's a marriage covenant. And so Israel's idolatry and worshiping gods of the nations is in fact an act of spiritual adultery. And we also, when we were in that, if you'll recall, if you were with us several weeks back, we saw that that rather than God being simply a dispassionate observer, instead, he in fact is a jealous God. And we saw that God's jealousy isn't like the petty jealousy that we're so familiar with as people. Instead, we saw that God's jealousy is a holy jealousy that flows from his holy love for his people. In chapter 3, we find Hosea in the marketplace as a slave. Her rampant adultery, I'm sorry, Gomer is in the marketplace as a slave. Her rampant adultery led her to uh, have, in some way, found herself sold into slavery. 
And God tells Hosea to go and buy Gomer back. And this is an amazing picture of God's grace towards sinners, the spiritually bankrupt who have, have absolutely nothing to offer on their own for salvation. And so Hosea redeems Gomer. He, he frees her. He brings her back. And here we find a picture of what the Messiah Jesus would do, what he would accomplish on, on Calvary six centuries later, that he would give his life to purchase God's people from the slave market of sin. In chapter 4, though, we find that Gomer's unfaithfulness continues, and the prophet Hosea uh, describes then God's uh, workings with his people and his pleading with his people. And then he brings us into a courtroom scene where God brings charges against his people in the court. There's no faithfulness, God says. There's no kindness amongst God's people. There's no knowledge of God amongst God's people. Instead, as a nation, as God looks at them, he charges them with swearing, deception, murder, stealing, and adultery. And so we come this morning now to another set of of legal challenges in this ongoing courtroom scene. But there's a difference. Now, we find that the charges are not merely against God's people, but specifically against God's leaders. We find this in Hosea chapter 5. You'll find that, by the way, on page 642 in the Bibles on the chair rack in front of you, so if you'd like to use one of those. It's in the Old Testament, which would mean it's toward the beginning of that Bible. There's two sections, Old and New Testament. So page 642. And... uh, In the honor of God's word, would you please stand and follow along as I read? Hosea chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. Hear this, O priests. Give heed, O house of Israel. Listen, O house of the king, for the judgment applies to you, for you have been a snare at Mitzpah and a net spread out on Tabor. The revolters have gone deep in depravity, but I will chastise all of them. I know Ephraim and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, Ephraim, you have played the harlot. Israel has defiled itself. Their deeds will not allow them to return to their God. For a spirit of harlotry is within them, and they do not know the Lord. Moreover, the pride of Israel testifies against him. And Israel and Ephraim stumble in their iniquity. Judah has also stumbled with them. They will go with their flocks and herds to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. He has withdrawn from them. They have dealt treacherously against the Lord, for they have borne illegitimate children. Now the new moon will devour them with their land. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you, by your Spirit, would work in these words that you've penned to change us. Lord, we pray that that in in areas of our life where we also have embraced idols in some way, that you would show that to us, that we would repent, that we would turn, that we would return to you. Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness. And we ask that we would be so taken aback by by your holy grace and your holy justice and your holy love and your holy jealousy, that we would stand in awe of you, that we would worship you, and that we would live in a way that brings you glory. We ask this so that others would know you too. We pray these things in the name of our risen Savior, Jesus. Amen. 
Go ahead and be seated. So certainly today's section of Hosea is going to show us the devastating nature of idolatry. And, and, and we're going to see several things that come from idolatry. And the first thing we would find is this. Idolatry brings distance. And we find that in the first portion of chapter 5. Again, this is a courtroom setting. Uh, this is where charges are being brought now, not against God's people only, but also against the priests. You'll notice it says, hear this, O priests. Listen, O house of the king. Right? These are the leaders. And, and as much as the earlier courtroom accusations were against the people at large, now God is, is bringing focus to the leadership. And yet we also find that even as these three imperatives are given, right, hear this, give heed, listen, you know, wake up, he's saying, pay attention. Um, he's, he's also showing us that there's a kind of an interaction in some ways between the idolatry of leadership, the idolatry of people, and the idolatry of leadership. It kind of flows through that. Notice in verse 1, it says, O priests, and then O house of Israel, and then O house of the king. It's almost showing how idolatry in some way is sort of like a contaminant. It kind of flows through God's people. I mean, let's face it, we are very well aware of contaminants these days, are we not? We've just come through this thing. Maybe you haven't watched the news much, but there was this pandemic, you know? It was global. If you missed it, well, good for you, <laughs> Okay? But most of us, we know what that was. And what did we do, right? We were running around. We were trying to keep away from each other, especially early on. We didn't know how this thing worked. Um, everything from, from masking. to I, I remember shopping. You know, I'd go to a grocery outlet, and I'd come home with groceries, and I was like wiping down the groceries, right? Remember in the beginning? Like, we didn't know how this thing lived. We weren't sure of it. We're very much aware of what a contaminant is, right? But here's a question. Are we aware of how much a contagion idolatry is? Do we see that? Because it's contagious. It's very easy to slip into. And we've said this many times before. If you're new with us today, we're really glad you're here. But we talk about idolatry when it comes up in the passages of Scripture that we're addressing um, because it's a theme in Scripture and, frankly, it's a theme in our lives. We all battle idols. And it probably isn't a wooden thing you've carved and stuck by your doorway that you're bowing down to. But we, we worship the things that we want. Anytime we take something and put that thing, maybe even a good thing, in the place of God in our lives, it's an idol. So things like, like our, our families, if you have a family, that can be an idol. Your longing to be married or have a family, that can be an idol. Your education, not a bad thing, but if it becomes an ultimate thing, now all of a sudden I'm worshiping that and it does become a bad thing. And so, so whatever it is, you know, oftentimes we'll, we'll, we'll ask this question, you know, if you were to say, you haven't really lived until you've, fill in the blank, or my life is not complete unless I have, fill in the blank. Often, not always, but often, that's a good indicator. Uh, or, or if I'm denied something, if I'm walking through life and living it, and all of a sudden, I don't have this thing that I would expect, and then I react in a way that's sinful, um, it's a demonstration that somehow I, I, I'm putting more weight on this thing than it can bear. Uh, and again, that could be a, a perfectly good thing. Um, but when it becomes an ultimate thing, it becomes a bad thing. So uh, we'll talk about that a little bit more later. 
But here we need to ask that question. Do we really grasp how contagious it is? Because it does. It affects all of us. We, you know, all of us together, we're a community. You know, when God, when God saves someone, when you come to Christ, you're not just walking alone with Jesus. We were mentioning that earlier today in the newcomers class. Uh, there's, there's no such thing as the Christian life lived alone. If you're trying to live the Christian life alone, you're not living the Christian life. You've got to think of another name for it because that's not what that is. We are a community. We are together and, and our lives affect one another as well. And so uh, there's, there's a sense in which idolatry flows in and amongst God's people. It is a contagion. And, I, and, and Hosea is bringing this out here for us to, to understand that there are consequences that come from that. Um, and, and there are several ways in which he describes it. I want to draw your attention actually to verses uh, 3 and 4 because we kind of see that this result of distancing that happens idolatry, whenever God's people embrace it, there is a distance that's created between them and God. There's a distancing that happens. And we see it in verses 3 and 4. If you look really closely, he says, you know, you'll notice it it shifts from uh, the first person, I know Ephraim. Then by the second part of the verse, it's you have played the harlot. And then by verse 4, it's third person. Their deeds will not allow them to return to their God. The spirit of harlotry is within them. So you can kind of see the, the prophet through the poetry is actually bringing out this ongoing distancing of first person, second person, third person. It's bringing a distance between God and his people. There's a defilement. And, uh, and the way that, that that is described here shows that. Um, there's there's a, a forsaking of Yahweh. Uh, and that's God's, you know, again, covenant name for himself. That's his, his, his personal name that he gave to Moses there in, in Exodus chapter 3. And, uh, and, and it brings about devastating results. Um, what, what's the cause? Look at verse 5. It's pride. Israel, that's the northern kingdom. Ephraim is another synonym used for the northern kingdom for two reasons. One, because Ephraim was the largest tribe. And then also because of their location, they kind of took up most of the central area of the northern kingdom. So Ephraim is, is a kind of a synonym for Israel. And so you can see in verse 5, Israel and Ephraim stumble in their iniquity. But notice, the southern kingdom isn't immune. Look at the end of verse 5. Judah has also stumbled with them. There it is. It's contagious. It has a way of spreading. And, and, and there's a consequence that comes about because of that. Notice, they're going to go out with their flocks and herds and seek the Lord, but they won't find him. Why? He is withdrawn from them. So God has withdrawn. Why? Because they withdrew. God's giving them what they want. They don't want Yahweh. God's saying, fine. You want life without me? There you go. I won't, I won't interfere. You can seek me. You're not going to find me. And so there's sort of a sense of, of just justice that God's giving them exactly what they've longed for. Verse 7 goes on to explain it. They've dealt treacherously with the Lord. They've borne illegitimate children. Very likely, this would be, we mentioned in weeks prior, uh, the temple worship of these pagan gods included temple prostitution. And so as a result of the prostitution, children were born. And so God's saying, you've engaged in these acts. You've committed these deeds. And because of that, there's a distance now growing between me and you. And, uh, and then verse 7 closes with a very, so should I just stop moving? I can't if I stop moving. <laughs> Honestly, every time I move, there's an explosion. So forgive me. We'll just keep moving. I'm, uh, 
I'm Italian, so I cannot just stand still and talk. I'm sorry. I've tried, people. It doesn't work. So, all right. Anyway, um, if you need to swap anything out, just let me know. I'll, I'll come over or whatever. Um, by the way, let's just thank the sound guys. Okay, they do a great job. So it's like every week after week, like, it's such a, I, they only get attention when things go wrong. So I, it's terrible. It's terrible. All right. Um, verse 7 closes with this picture of the new moon will devour them. And that is, that is really interesting because traditionally the new moon was a time of feasting for Israel. And so now what Hosea is doing is he's personifying this feast as being, in fact, a glutton. And, and, and it's going to devour the worshipers and the portion that would typically go to the priests. You see what's happening? So this thing that would have been a feast... You're not celebrating a feast. As a matter of fact, the feast is going to feast on you because you've allowed this distance to grow between yourself and your God. You've forsaken your God for idols. And so there's a distance that happens. And and, and this happens in our lives as well, does it not? Think about it. I mean, I'm not sure. As I look at this room, all of us have different things we wrestle with. Right? Different, different idols. We call them idols of the heart. You know, and I'm not sure which one you know, would be yours, but whatever it would be. Let, let's, let's say it's, it's comfort and ease. Maybe that's your idol. If that's it, if, if your life pretty much centers on, look, the main thing I want is to be comfortable and to be able to do what I want to do when I want to do it in an easy way. Um, you placing, by the way, is rest a bad thing? No. It's a good thing. I mean, rest really is us admitting before God that we're not him, right? I mean, the only being in the universe that doesn't need to rest is God. When I'm resting, in my more spiritual moments when I'm resting, it's a recognition of, Lord, um, I need to just stop because I'm not you. And and it, it can be an act of worship. However, when rest becomes, I must have it. And I must have it now. Right? Or if, it, if all of a sudden the people in my life that maybe I'm, you know, could be family, could be a friend, could be others, they start interfering with that, and then I get kind of cantankerous, and I'm going, what's with that? Right? All of a sudden now, I am not trusting God in that. I'm seeking this thing out, a blessing that he gives his rest, but I'm now clinging to it as the ultimate thing. What's the result? Well, get this. I'm not resting. Okay, it's getting worse, and I don't know. I'm not even moving hardly at all. All right. So, I, I know, I, I, so by resting, the irony is when I'm clinging to it, when I'm worshiping it, when I'm relying on that, I am the least rested of all, right? And so that distancing, that's what God is describing here. And so idolatry brings distance between God and his people. But sadly, it it does more than that. It also brings destruction. And and we would see that in this next scene in verses 8 through 14. What happens is we go from the courtroom, and rather than simply being in the courtroom, now we've shifted to the battlefield. It's a new scene. If if you were watching a movie of some kind right now, it would sort of be, you know, fade and then boom. You're in the middle of this battlefield. You know, weapons are being fired. Huh? Wait, I can't get it to see now. I can't get it to do it. 
See that? <laughs> Weapons are being fired. See you. Oh, there we go. Got it. Yeah. Woo. Um, yeah. Like that. Like that. So weapons are being fired, um, and, and people are running for safety. They're running for cover. They're trying to get safe. And so right here, we find a graphic description of that battlefield. So here's what it says. Verse 8. And go ahead and follow along if you'd like. Blow the horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah. Sound the alarm in Beth Haven. Behind you, Benjamin, no problem. Ephraim will become a desolation. We're going to try to do this like, like the, uh, you know, then I will pour out my wrath like water. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment because he has determined to follow a man's command. So really, this is a battle summons from Yahweh to Israel. And, and this is uh, Yahweh saying, blow the horn, the trumpet. And he's describing these different geographical areas. By the way, um, a little bit concerning to Israel, at least it should be, because these are two regions that are sort of toward the south. And Assyria is coming in from the north. So when they heard this, they're going, oh man, Assyria is going to make it that far? Oh, <laughs> that's not good. And then, notice it goes on at the end of verse 8. Sound an alarm in Beth Haven. So continuing south again. And then, behind you, Benjamin, you can see confusion here. It's almost as if Israel is personified as in the battle. And the attack is coming. And the attack is coming in farther than he had anticipated. And he's unprepared and doesn't know what to do. And then there's a whisper from behind. Hey, Benjamin, behind you. He's not ready for that. He's completely being taken off guard. And then the description is brutal, right? Ephraim was going to become a desolation. Um, And then, of course, Judah's in trouble too. Notice verse 10. Judah is like those who move the boundary. It's possible that Judah is attempting to take advantage of the situation, right? So Judah is sort of going, oh, look what's happening with the northern kingdom. (laughs) Ha, 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 ha. Well, we're going to move the boundary up just a little bit. And the picture here is, you're going to do that, Judah? Because you know what? Assyria's coming south. That's not going to make you safe. That's not going to help you. Uh, And then Ephraim, again, is oppressed and crushed in judgment. That's a really important phrase, to be crushed like that in judgment. Because if you'll, you'll notice, that's what, that is what Israel deserves, that crushing judgment. And yet, what does Isaiah 53 say of the Messiah? He was crushed for our iniquities. He was crushed for us. So this is justice, and yet the crushing judgment ultimately is going to be taken by the Messiah um, but that, that comes a little later. So God is, is, is showing this troubling and, and dangerous scene to Israel, this, this uh, time of distress. And, and there's a reason for it. Uh, verse 11, because he, Ephraim or Israel, was determined to follow a man's command. That word for command is very picturesque. It actually has the idea of filth. Uh, it actually has the idea of... Um, well, excrement, waste, uh, vomit. Those are the words for that. So what God's saying is you 
trusting and relying upon a man's command rather than God's, you running to this other nation uh, because of their prominence is really nothing more than you running after something that's as disgusting as filth or vomit. And that's how God feels toward that kind of, of uh, forsaking of him for some kind of an idol. And then, and then God moves on to describe uh, himself in light of some really uh, kind of colorful analogies from the fallen creation around Israel because they wouldn't turn to him for help. And so now he, he goes on to say in verse 12 and following, he says this, Therefore I, Yahweh, am like a moth to Ephraim and like rottenness to the house of Judah. What are those? Those are pests, right? A moth is something that comes in and eats your clothes. Maybe you've had that happen to you before. You ever had something made out of wool and you come to put it on and you're like, oh, that's not going to work. Uh, rottenness, when food would rot, when there was some sort of way in which they could not keep their perishable items fresh and edible, it was all a waste. They didn't have refrigeration. So when you have this kind of rot and moth, it's, these are things that would just pester and annoy. And in some ways, Yahweh is sh- showing himself to say, you're going to trust in these others uh, nations or other people or their gods, I am going to be a pest to you. I'm not going to allow you to do that. It's not going to work. And then verse 13 describes how Israel or Ephraim saw how sick they were. And notice what they do. When Ephraim saw his sickness in Judah, his wound, when Ephraim went to Assyria, in other words, they're going to this faraway doctor for help, and sent to King Jareb, but he was unable to heal you or cure you of your wound. So you, you went to this far-off doctor. You didn't trust me for what you were dealing with. And, and, and what good did it do you? That's the wrong place to go for help. And then he actually takes the, the stakes and, and, and raises them in verse 14, because then Yahweh goes on to say, I will be like a lion to Ephraim. So you wanted your wound to be healed, you go somewhere else, they can't heal you, and I, in my justice, in my, in my holy jealousy, I, like a lion, like a young lion to the house of Judah, both northern and southern kingdoms, even I will tear to pieces and will go away. I will carry away and there will be none to deliver. Now, he's describing what Assyria is going to do when they invade. They are going to carry them away into exile. That's going to happen. And, and if Judah, the southern kingdom, thinks that they're safe from this, they're not. They also will endure uh, this kind of invasion. But we, but we see here this destruction that comes about from idolatry when, when people run to the wrong place. And, uh, and, and what happens is the very thing that they thought would heal and help and, and grace is the very thing that destroys them. Uh, for, for those that uh, get caught up in addictive cycles, we see this repeatedly, don't we? Uh, it's, it's, it's hard. Those things are enticing. And there's a way of being pulled in, whether it's substance abuse, uh, whether it's pornography, uh, whether it's some other form of, of something that, that someone's saying, I, I need this to live. Typically, it started with just a little bit and it ended up being something that consumes and destroys. Um, but God's saying, you don't go to those places for help. 
run to me. And in this situation, God's saying, I'm, I'm going to be uh, using this foreign nation to judge you because you've run to them for salvation. <laughs> They're not going to help you. Israel and Judah were both trying to play Assyria. They played them in different ways, though. One kingdom was saying, you know what? Uh, we are going to oppose Assyria. We're going to fight them. We're going to get other allies. Judah, the southern kingdom, goes to Assyria and says, you know what? The reason why Israel is attacking us, it's because we're allied with you. And Assyria goes, oh, really? So then they invade the northern kingdom. So they're both trying to play the situation politically rather than trusting God. So there's a devastating nature of idolatry. It brings distance it brings destruction. And lastly, we would find it also brings delusion. Uh, here is yet again another shift of, of scenes. And, uh, and what God does is he, he says, I will go away. Look at verse 15. I will go away, return to my place. Where is God's place? Well, in this case, it'd be the temple. Until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and their affliction... They will earnestly seek me. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, but he will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before him. So let us now, let us know and let us press on to know the Lord. His going forth is as certain as the dawn. He will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain watering the earth. Wow, major shift. God's saying, I'm going to go away to my place, the temple. And then what happens? There is this call to repentance. There is hope for Israel's repentance. Right in the midst of all this. And what do we learn from that? Look at the lengths God goes through to win back a wayward people. Look at all the ways he describes things. He uses all these different analogies, these different pictures. He's, he's showing what it is to be covenant, uh, faithful in his hesed and his loving kindness. He's showing what it means to do that, and he's giving them a courtroom scene. He's giving them a battlefield scene. He's showing himself to be, uh, you know, a moth, rottenness, a lion. I mean, he's just describing all these different ways that their idolatry is bringing about destruction, and yet in the midst of it all, he's saying, come, return to me. And, and, you know, when he says, you know, in in verse 2, after two days he will revive us that shows that even though there's been a fierce slaying in the previous section by a lion they are not beyond the lord's healing and 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 then in the in the next phrase he will raise us up on the third day does that cause any bells to ring is that a coincidence i i don't think so He will raise us on the third day. You know, the Greek translation of this section, it's called the Septuagint. It was done in about 265 B.C. or so. Uh, The people of God couldn't read Hebrew anymore. It was all Koine Greek. And so a bunch of scholars got together and they translated the Old Testament into Greek. But realize this, this section in the Septuagint was the very thing that undergirded Jesus and the New Testament writers as they would describe the resurrection on the third day as being according to the scriptures. They're referring to this passage when they talked about this. And that makes sense because Israel's third day resurrection 
is ultimately realized in the resurrection of the one who acted in Israel's place. And so that's why Jesus would instruct his disciples even in Mark 8, 31. It says, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And then you might recall, you know, of course, what, what did Peter say? Hold on, whoa, not my plan. What are you doing? Right? Because Peter had a, another idea. I'm riding your coattails. We're defeating Rome. This, I don't know what you're talking about, this dying thing. And didn't even hear the raising three day, raising three days thing. He was too centered on, again, the political power move that he was making with Jesus. And what does Jesus say to him? Get behind me, Satan. Um, not, not, not the right, you're, you're centering your thoughts on not God's plans, but on, on man's. Uh, but but that, that same idea, after three days, we find it also, maybe you'll recall from the, the trial that Jesus underwent, the, the kind of pseudo-trial, the false witnesses. Even the false witnesses testified, and they said this, we heard him say, I'll destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days, build another made without hands. So there's that phrase again. They heard Jesus talk about that, because he did say that. And we're told in the Gospels, he was talking about his body being raised again on the third day. And then even as Jesus was giving his life on the cross, later in Mark 15, those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, ha, you are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. And yet, even after that, it's exactly what he did. You see the same attitude, don't you, in both places? The people insulting the Lord, reviling him, distancing themselves from him. And we see this same faithfulness. Isaiah 53 says he was crushed. Again, the very thing that was meted out in judgment. He was crushed for our transgressions. That's what Israel deserved back in verse 11 of chapter 5. That's what we deserve. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. But notice this, and back to chapter 6, verse 2 of Hosea. He's going to revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day. Why? That we may live before him. Do you see that? He did all of this that we would, would know him, walk with him. Maybe you're here today and you've never come to that place of trusting Christ. Do you realize that all the things written here in Hosea are pointing ahead to six centuries later when he would bear the sins of all who would trust in him, that he takes their sins upon himself and in exchange gives his righteousness to all who receive it by faith. And so the message to you would be trust him today, turn to him today, rest in his finished work of righteousness, know what it means to be reconciled to God and to have life in his name. Maybe you're, you're a believer here today. Maybe you're a Christian and you're going through a really, really challenging time because you've engaged in a life of distance from God. Maybe you've been after idols. Maybe you've been seeking after things in his place. And, and if that's so, it could very well be that God's taking you into this moment to say, hey, turn to me. Right, just as it says here, come, let us return to the Lord. 
He's torn us, but he will heal us. He longs to do that for you. It might be that you're, you're waiting on God right now. Maybe you're in a situation like that, and it's not because you've, you've been embracing idols. Maybe it's just that you're in a hard time because he has you going through a hard time. And the message for you here from this book would be wait for him. Wait for God the healer, the one who mends. Wait for him to bind you up and to revive you. But, but here's, here's a question that comes up if we're you know, kind of observing this in a way with any kind of thoughtfulness. It, 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 it comes up. How can God be both the terror, as in the one who rips, and the healer at the same time? How's that possible? How can God tear up and at the same time heal those who turn to them, him? How, how can he strike us down at the same time, bind up his people? And without question, the answer is the cross. At the cross, God tore the one who stood in our place, Jesus Jesus was torn, we're told in Isaiah 53, that we might be healed. Jesus was struck down that we would be raised up. Jesus died the death that we deserve so that we might live in God's presence. Again, turn to Jesus today. Be restored in him. Sadly, Israel refused that call at that time. And so... Yahweh goes on to address them in verses 4 and following. Here's what it says. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, Judah? It's sort of like they, they seem to have come forward. They kind of feigned some repentance, but then they went back and they weren't really, they were kind of trying to mix things in together. We find throughout the book of Hosea, there's sort of the syncretism, right? They're taking a little bit of the Canaanite gods, a little bit of Yahwehism, and we'll blend them up and see what we come up with. And so he says, what am I to do with you, Ephraim and Judah? Again, northern and southern kingdoms both. For your loyalty is like a morning cloud and like the dew that goes away early. That word for loyalty literally is hesed. So your loving kindness, you people, your covenant love is like the dew that evaporates in the morning. And then verse 5, therefore I've hewn them to pieces by the prophets. I've slain them by the words of my mouth. And the judgments on you are like the light that goes forth. And he says, why? Why is that? Again, this ongoing theme of judgment, righteous, holy judgment. Verse 6, because or for I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Again, what is he saying? I delight in hesed. Loving kindness, faithfulness. I give that to you as your God. And yet you don't return it to me as my people. He then goes on to cite several historical occasions of, of this idea of not actually knowing Yahweh. He describes in verse 6 that I delight in people knowing me and then he shows how they haven't. He uses the example of Adam, of Gilead, and of a band of priests who had committed murder in Shechem. And those were historical examples that they all knew of. And then he, he concludes in saying, in the house of Israel, I've seen a horrible thing. There's harlotry there. Israel's defiled itself. Oh, Judah, there's a harvest time appointed for you. So Israel and Judah, again, 
there's trouble. And yet, he then concludes with, when I restore the fortunes of my people, when I would heal Israel. You see what's happened there? The very first verse of chapter 7 is really better put with the end of chapter 6. The chapter markers are not inspired, folks. The text is, okay? Where those numbers came in, you know, some have alluded or thought, you know, it was some guy on horseback who just kind of put numbers in. We don't know. I mean, that's probably not it. But, but the point is, verse 1 of chapter 7 is better connected with the rest of chapter 6. So when I restore the fortunes of my people, when I heal Israel, uh, that's God's call, God's offer of restoration. And, and so as we conclude today, we just got to recognize something. God is ready to restore. Are we ready to repent of our idolatry and return to him? Again, idolatry brings distance, destruction, and delusion. Will we instead turn away from that and run back to the Lord? Again, I'd like to conclude with the same question we began with. Do you love God more than anything else in the whole world? And to the extent that we answer yes, kind of, or not really, We are enmeshed in idolatry. And we need to wake up to the truth that our idolatry, no matter how subtle, brings a distance between us and God, places us in a path of destruction, and means that we're living under a delusion that somehow these idols can actually give life when they can't. Tim Keller, in his book, The Reason for God, shows several ways in which idolatry kind of overtakes our lives. And... and, uh, and I love how he kind of brings it into some practical areas, but we find here in Hosea that idolatry really is loving anything more than God. And so even as, as, as we consider that, we need to think about that. You know, if, if we love our spouse or partner more than God, we're going to be emotionally dependent, jealous, and controlling, and, and th- that person's problems are going to be overwhelming to us. If you love your family and children more than God, you're going to try to live life for your children until they resent you or have no self of their own. Or at worst, you may even abuse them if they displease you. If you love your work and career more than God, you're going to be a driven workaholic. And frankly, you're going to be boring. You're going to be a shallow person. And you might lose family and friends. And if your career goes poorly, you're going to be deep in depression. If you love money and possessions more than God, you're going to be eaten up with worry and jealousy about money. You're going to be willing to do unethical things to maintain your lifestyle, and eventually it's going to blow up your life. If you love pleasure and gratification and comfort more than God, you'll find yourself getting addicted to something. You'll become chained to these escape strategies, and you're going to end up trying to avoid the hard moments of life at every turn. If you love relationships and approval more than God, you're going to be constantly hurt by criticism. You're going to be losing friends all the time. You're going to fear confronting others. And so because of that, you're not going to be a very helpful friend at all. If you love some kind of noble cause more than God, you're going to divide the world into good and bad, and you're going to demonize your opponents, and ironically, you'll be controlled by your enemies because without them, you really won't have a purpose. If you love religion or moral performance more than God, you will, if you're living up to your moral standards, be a proud, self-righteous, cruel person. And if you don't live up to your moral standards, the guilt overwhelming your life is going to be devastating. Do any of these loves sound familiar to you? 
Do any of them resonate in your heart? Don't despair because there is great hope. God in his faithfulness has overwhelmed our unfaithfulness with his faithful son, Jesus, the Messiah. Christ never loved anyone or anything more than his heavenly father. And if you've received his gift of salvation, your unrighteousness, your sin, your idolatry has been laid on Christ. And his perfect love for God has been credited to you. So let's hear what God is saying to us today through this prophecy from Hosea. And let's return to the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would cause these things to uh, be applied to our hearts by your spirit. We ask that you would cause us to forsake idols most of all because of a growing love for you that comes from your perfect love extended to us in Jesus. And we ask these things in our Savior's name. Amen.